You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 3, we are in our study of uh, the letter that Peter is writing to those that are exiled. They're, um, the, they're in the midst of persecution. They are in the Asia Minor area. The um, emperor at the time is Nero. And Peter is in Rome, and he is seeing uh, the storm coming. And so they've already experienced some of what it means to be persecuted, but there is more on the way. And Peter is writing to this group of believers that are wondering, well, what does tomorrow hold? What does the next week or month or year hold as the persecution begins to build? And will this pass quickly? Will it not pass quickly? And all the apostles are, are dying or being martyred. And so what, what, what's, the, what's the next chapter for the church? And so Peter's writing them to know, hey, listen, you've never been more secure than you are today. You've been born again to a living hope. This is the church of Jesus, and it's not going anywhere. And so he's going to write to them and encourage them and, and, and teach them. So what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, um, 8 through 12. Last week, Fritz um, taught us the, the first seven verses of chapter 3, the husbands and the wives passages, and I'm glad to see you're back. And uh, Those are hard passages, but such hopeful passages. I don't know, maybe you weren't here. If you weren't, you need to listen to it. It's, it's, it's outstanding. Um, and he's going to move into 8. And so let, let me tell you how it goes. I'm going to read it, but I'll tell you what you're looking for. Verse 8. He's, it's, it's kind of a summary of what life looks like in the church as believers. Verse 9 then focuses outward. What, what does our life look like when we are with the world out there? And then 10 through 12, he's going to quote from Psalm 34, which has already been on his mind, which likely is in the backdrop of writing this whole letter. He's meditating on Psalm 34. We'll talk about that, and then we're going to take communion together as a church. And so we... Um, that's where we are. First Peter chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. He is going to talk to us about the good life. What does it mean to have a good life? So verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's going to begin by saying, finally, all of you. It's a, it's a summary without being a, a conclusion. He's going to sum up this, this teaching, this 
instruction that he's been encouraging believers with. As we go back a couple of weeks, he says, okay, this is how we live in, 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 in authority under the authority of the government. How you live in, under the authority of those that you work for. You, you get up, go to your job on Monday morning. And how we live under the authority and submission in our homes, in our marriages, as, as, as husbands and wives and children, as Christ is our head. And so now, he's kind of summing all of it up. Now, now all of you, all of us here in the church, and I, I think there's something actually very comforting about this instruction in the midst of suffering and persecution. See, you... It's not merely survival mode. I mean, Peter's not writing to the church like, okay, man, we gotta, we gotta batten down the hatches, man. The, the suffering's coming. We gotta take cover. No, he's instructing them not only just how to live, but how to thrive. I mean, the sky is not falling for Peter. Remember, he wants him to know that the, that the gospel faith they have, this this hope, this living hope in Jesus, it's more than just this philosophical conversation that we have at the Starbucks. Christianity is more than that. It's a real hope in a real world during real life. And, and so Peter's not writing, he's not writing like a David Koresh or a cult leader, you know, who's taking the church and running for the hills and stockpiling guns. And, you know, I mean, people respond this way, don't they? I mean, they. They say things like, you know, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You, you ever heard that? Like, out of your mouth? I mean, did, we do drastic things. We take drastic measures. We, we get scared. We get antsy. We get panicky. We, we do dumb stuff. We, we feel threatened. But listen, the church has never been marked by the sky is falling mentality. R rather, the, the church's response, and in any situation, hope is coming. Hope is coming. And we are to be people who thrive. So Peter, he's teaching, he's instructing in the midst of this. I mean, I probably told you, you've heard me tell this story before, but it's one of the most significant events in my life. And so if you, if you go back, you know, 14, 15 years ago to 9-11, I mean, so we all remember 9-11, and, and I'll never forget that and where I was. But, but what I'm also never going to forget is 9-12, the day after 9-11. And I was in seminary at the time, and the, uh, the, so the school had been evacuated and canceled. It was in downtown, near downtown Dallas, and... Um, uh, so, so everybody goes home and watches the news all day and all night, just like, like we all did. But I, I remember, so 9-12 was the next day. It was a Wednesday, and I was taking this class in seminary called Suicide Hebrew. It was two semesters of Hebrew in one. It was aptly named. It was the dumbest decision I ever made in my life, all right? But on 9-12, we were scheduled to have a midterm, the first semester midterm on 9-12, so we were all, you know, calling around and sending each other emails thinking, surely we're not going to have the test. I mean, we, the, the world is in chaos. The, 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 everything's falling apart. There's no way we can have a test. And so nobody studied, and I didn't study, but I showed up at class the next day, walked in, and 
our professor, Hebrew professor, she walked in and she handed out the test. And then she read from C.S. Lewis, um, Thoughts on Wartime. And she said, you know what? She said, I know you came here and you weren't planning to take a test, but let me tell you something. We have a, we have a living hope. I mean, the world doesn't stop because somebody knocks down some buildings. The, the church doesn't go anywhere. God's word is still here. The people of God continue to pass God's word on and the hope of God's word. So get ready. Pull out your pens. We're going to take the test. And we all failed. <laughs> but man, I'll never forget that. Life doesn't stop. We don't run for the hills. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, the generations of the church bear it out. Persecution is part of the warp and the woof of following Jesus. It just is. And, and there are people in the world today that, that are meeting under, under threat of their life and, and, and in secret. And I mean, so, so we know it's happening. We've been, we've been sheltered from it in so many ways. But maybe the day is coming. And I think Peter's writing to say, look, life's not on hold. We're thriving and, and our, our hope is coming. We've been born again to a living hope. So we're going to live. We're going to go on living and thriving. We're going to go to work. We're going to be generous. We're going to love our families and Get married and make babies and build houses and meet together and keep learning and keep growing. I remember, I just think Peter probably thought about this so many times in his life. Tried to work out the depth of meaning all his life when he's there with Jesus and he confesses, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus turns around and says, man, you're right. And on this rock, on that confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail over it. I'm not going anywhere. Until Jesus comes for us. And in the meantime, we thrive. We thrive. Neurotic emperors and narcissistic governors and the circus of political elections and world wars and terrorisms and super Tuesdays and spectacular Saturdays or whatever it's called. Storms. And storms are storms to come. The church is safe. We aren't going anywhere. So as the church, here's how we're going to live out who we are because of what God has done. This is how we're going to operate. It's what it looks like to live together in this world. That's what he's getting at. So he says, all of us, all of us. This isn't just the pastors and the elders. It's, it's all of us. He didn't talk to the pastors and elders in chapter 5. He's going to be all over them. And the, but this is more than just the regular attenders. It's, if you're a believer, you're a part of this deal. You're a vital part of this deal. There's no hierarchy of importance in the church. Let me say it this way. Did, did, did you know there's no important people in the church? Or, or maybe let me say it another way. Everybody's important. There's no one seat of honor. Every seat is a seat of honor. The church doesn't belong to a pastor or elders or committees or cliques. It's 
belongs to Jesus. And where is body? Then he says, listen, have unity of mind. It's a word homophrono. So having the same uh, mind or, or thinking or, or opinions. The, the, the Greek and the Roman philosophers, they, they talked about it. So Peter's going to give us five virtues here, if you will, like a virtue list. And, and they talked about these virtues. Peter's going to pull the rug out from under us in a second. But, but it's how we live with each other. It's how we live together. It's the culture that the church is built on, and it's a culture that's counter to the culture out there. And so one way to say it is that we live in harmony with each other. To have the same mind is to live in harmony. So at, at the place of your thinking and your mind and your opinions, we're, we're in harmony. So, so it's, not, it, it's unity, it's not unanimity. It's, it's harmony, not unison. We, we all sing. We all carry the notes. We all have a different voice and in a, a different part of the body. But we sing the same song together. You know, if you come to Discover Bethel, and one of the things we talk about there, if you're visiting Bethel and checking it out, Discover Bethel is a place to come, look under the hood. And one of the things we talk about there is, is doctrine, what, what it is that we believe. And so we have these, uh, in our doctrinal statement, what we call eight essential doctrines. And they're eight sentences that declare what is essential about our belief. It's a statement about God's Word. It is a statement that God is three and one and three and one. He's Trinity. Statement about the nature of Christ. He's fully God and fully man. A statement about who we are. We come into the world as rebels shaking our fist, doing, having nothing we can bring to the table to reconcile us to God. And we are in desperate need of a Savior all the way down to, listen, Jesus is coming back in a bodily, physical re return to reign. And so these eight essentials. And, and, and what we say about it is, listen, this is, this is the the unity of, of our belief here. And so to be a member, to be a formal member of the church, say, yeah, I, I affirm those eight things. I believe those eight things. Even if I don't fully understand them, even if I'm going to work them out the rest of my life, I believe that. I, I affirm it. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm working towards greater understanding of those things. And then, but the reality is we have a six-page doctrinal statement that has what we would call distinctives or you might say non-essential. doesn't mean they're, they're not essential. They're just things we have said, look, we believe this. We, we look at the text. We think, we believe to the best of our ability of understanding the text. And our, this, is, this is what we believe about that. But listen, some of those things we, we can disagree about. You have a different view of that? The things, listen, we think the text says this. We, 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 we teach this. We're committed to that. But we're not going to fight over those things. We're going to love each other before we fight over those things. That's what he's talking about. We'd have the same. Listen, if you want to, if you want to get loud and debate and passionate, by all means do it. I love that. We're not going to disrespect and be unloving and personally tear each other down. We're not trying to win anything with each other. 
It's how we, it's how we operate as the church. It's how we operate as elders here, by the way. Mr. You know, we talked about elder and deacon nominations, and this is how the, <clears throat> the elders. I mean, so the first Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. It's a good thing to aspire to be an elder. It's a good thing to aspire to formal leadership in the church, and it's good. And, and so with these men, we, we'll affirm men, and we become elders. And listen, these guys, they love each other, and they work hard, and they're passionate. And, and at times, we don't all see eye to eye because we're fallible men doing eternal stuff. It's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's great. Sit in the room and sometimes it gets loud. You can tell real quickly who's the non-confrontational guys, you know. But it's all right. We, we're brothers. We walk out arm in arm. Even if we decide, you know what, we don't agree on that and that's okay. We love each other. Man, we table stuff and vote on it the next time and Trust the Lord to lead us. It's a harmony. He goes on and talks about sympathy and affection. Think of it this way. Ready to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. It, 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 sympathy, think about it this way. We allow the joys and the sorrows of others to get inside of our own feelings. We're not here to seek our own good. We enter into the needs and the concerns and the burdens of each other because we can't do this thing alone. You know, I, I was talking at first service about it. I asked somebody to help me with, a, with another word because the word in my notes, all right? Um, you know, I'm not talking about any of you here. I'm talking about um, you know, those that, that are not here this week. They'll be here next week. Um, but, but the word church, I put church leeches, all right? Um, I don't really like that word. It's kind of abrasive. Somebody came up and said, hey, why don't you say toddlers? Because that's better. It's like folks that attach themselves to the church for themselves only. I mean, they're here for what they get out of it. They don't want to be bothered with anybody else's needs. But they all have expectations of everything that the church ought to do for them. But it gets messy, and then they bail, or they get their feathers ruffled, and then they're out. Listen, we, we don't exploit each other. We don't take advantage of each other when we're vulnerable. It's a safe place to be vulnerable. It's a safe place to be broken. And we enter into that with each other. And he says brotherly love. It's, it's just family language. We're, we're brothers and sisters. We're children of the king. And then he talks about a tender heart. That, it's one of my favorite Greek words in all the New Testament. It's usplankos. All right? And it means your intestines, your, your bowels. In the first century, that was the seat of emotion. That I, that I love you and I care for you with all my guts. That's it. And the reason they didn't say heart is because they knew that above all things, the heart was deceitful. So they spoke about this inner care and compassion for each other. So uptight people, they're, they struggle with tender hearts, don't they? 
You know, in Luke 1, God is said to be tender in his mercy. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes about the tender affection of Jesus. That's how we're to be with each other. A, a tenderness with one another. And then he talks about, here's where he pulls a rug out. Because he's a humble mind. It's all these virtues that they might have passed in the, in the day, but not a humble mind. Humility was absolutely abhorred. It was the, it was the greatest weakness anyone could have in the first century. And Peter says, man, here's the deal. Not only all these things, but a humble mind as well. A humility of mind. Our minds are funny things, aren't they? I saw this movie. It, told, it talked about we use 10% um, of our brains. I don't know if that's right. 8%, 12%, I don't know. 4%, I, I don't know what it is. But, but the reality is when we're with other people a lot of times, we somehow think that while everybody else in the room is only using 10% of their brain, that we're using 50%. You know? Like, you're in the room and everybody's talking and you're, you think, oh my goodness, how cursed am I to have to put up with all these people that don't see it the way I see it? How, how cursed am I to have to bear the burden of being the smartest person in the room? Right? I mean, that's where pride comes from is our mind. I mean, for most of us, pride does not come from looking in the mirror. All right? Save my wife. I mean, she looks in the mirror, fights pride all the time. She's so beautiful. I know. That was pathetic. <laughs> it's true, but, you know. But, I mean, that's where it happens, right? We think, man, everybody's so dumb. Everybody's an idiot. People are idiots. The truth is, this we're pride. Paul says, no, let's have a humble mind. We bow to each other. So, man, I don't know. I can't see it the way you see it, but and I want to try to do that. You're going to talk more about humility in, in, in chapter 5, and we'll talk more about it there. Peter learned humility the hard way, right? The truth is the only way to learn humility is the hard way. So he's describing, verse 8, how we live with each other, and it's radically different than the culture that we are in the midst of. Okay? That's who we are. Now, he's, he's going to go to verse 9, and now he's going to point out. So how do we live with the world? Now listen, he says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. See, verse 8, how we live together, verse 9, it's going to look to the outside. Evil for evil. So that's natural. That's, well, we don't have to teach this. That's what you come into the world with. Someone takes your toy, you punch them, and you take it back. That's what we do. So someone, someone speaks ugly to you, you speak ugly back. Someone wrongs you, you're going to make it right. We come into the world with that. But it's the contrary that Peter is interested in. He says, he says bless. You're to bless. It's, it's a word. You know what the word is? It, it, behind the word, it's, it's, it's eulogy. It, it, it's a eulogy. We're, we're to bless. We're to say good things. We're to, we're to speak honorably and kind and good about those that would do evil to us. 
Paul says it in Romans 12 this way. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, Jesus said, Love your enemies. It's unfamiliar ground for us, though. I mean, submission to things that are good, or reciprocity to, to, to good things. I mean, that, that, that's natural. That, that comes natural to us, to, to fellow believers, to brothers and sisters. We, we get that. Even when the world, the, the culture around us does good, we, we, we know about that commodity, that, that economy of good. But to those that hate us, to those that aren't like-minded. And listen, if, if we're living out the Christ in us with a living hope, new creatures born again in Jesus, and the, the, the world seeks to extinguish that, just like they sought to extinguish Jesus. And it, and it looks all kinds of different ways. And so we, we don't experience it much here. Or do we? See, those that seek our harm, not our good, it's, it's hard. It feels like it cuts across the grain of what we know instinctually. We, we think, you know, listen, we watch out for each other. We keep on our guard. We protect. Isn't that the call? We, we, we watch each other's back. And Peter says, no. We resolve to bless those that would seek to have their own way with us. And we don't sing songs about that. It's not the songs of the culture. And I like the songs of the culture. You know, the, the beat, the rhythm, the melody, the bridge. We sing about security. We, we sing about justice and, and things being right. We sing about that. We don't sing about turning the other cheek. We don't sing about considering others better than ourselves. We, listen, we know right and wrong, don't we? We know it. We, we know when we've been wronged. We know when we've wronged. We don't begrudge justice. There is a sense in which in all of us that we, we know, listen, there is a right, that there is a, there is a justice, there is a true north. And the problem is, though, who's to say whose is right? i give you one example. Just one. Sunday afternoon in the 70s. Dallas Cowboys playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. Elders in my Bible church line up at the communion table and pray for Tom Landry. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you? And, and we are fans and we're passionate and we're rooting for the good guys to win. Because that's Right? It's not right that the Pittsburgh Steelers win. In fact, that's wrong. Except in Pittsburgh, I guess, they're praying for the same thing. They're praying for Chuck Noll. He needed need a lot of prayer. And they're praying that the bad guys would win, right? I mean, who's to say what's right? 
whose team is right? So we do that all the time. The, the, the reality is, this is what Peter said, there is a true north, a, a true good, a true justice, a direction in which right is found, and that's Jesus. And so in many ways, here's what we are as the church. We, we don't seek to right the wrongs. We don't seek um, our own justices. We as believers, we're like these north stars that point the way, that, that, that against the cultural darkness, we reflect the light of Jesus. And the way we do it is not by righting our own wrongs. The way we do it is we bless. We bless you. You wrong me. Peter says the way we reflect the true right, the true good, is we, we bless people. And one of the ways we have to do that is to forgive. Listen, when somebody's wronged you, you, you want to exact justice. You, you want to exact the debt from the person, or you can let God do it. So either you can exact the debt or you can give the whole thing over to God. Say, God, listen, you, you know what the person deserves or doesn't deserve. You know them. You created them. You did. I didn't. And, and we confess. Listen, no matter what I think, I know. I don't know everything. So we resolve to, to bless. We, listen, this, how, how do you forgive? Let me, let me tell you how you don't forgive. Three, three ways you sort of hang on to it. One is that you continue to bring it up with the person over and over and over again. You know, this little dig here, this little dig there, or you're cold or distant. You know, another way to do it is that you, instead of bringing it up to them all the time, you just bring it up to everybody else all the time. You, you run them down. You... You, you seek to undermine them. You, you seek to change opinion about them. Or the final way, maybe the most way, is we, we just continue to bring it up to ourselves. Like this, like this blanket we just hang on to. And we, and we continue to fuel and nurse our anger or our hurt. And I'll tell you what the Bible says is that turns into bitterness. And once bitterness takes root in your heart, it's one of the hardest things to ever unroot. It, it dominates your thinking. It dominates your life. And then you, you're a captive of it. And that bitterness, man, I'll tell you, Bitterness is the desire to bring somebody down. If you keep in your heart the desire continually to bring somebody down, to watch somebody fall, right? if evil for evil is all you know, you don't know the language of Christianity. You, you don't know what it is that you've been called to. You, you don't know the blessing you've been called to. You don't know the living hope you've been born into. You don't grasp the hope that is yours. You're grasping at your own hope. So what Peter does is he then is going to illustrate this. And he does it in the most fascinating way. He draws from 
Psalm chapter 34. So listen to the part that he quotes from Psalm 34. It's right in the middle of the psalm. He says, so four. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. So he's talking about, you want a good life? You want to see good days? Let me show you what this life is that you've been born into. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, let me tell you about what's going on in Psalm 34. And it's fascinating. It says Peter is probably meditating. He's meditating on this psalm. He's already quoted it at the beginning of three. Allusions to it all through this letter. And if you open to Psalm 34 and you read, there's a little subscript, superscript. It's the, it's the tiny letters right under Psalm 34 before you get to verse 1. And it says this. It says, when David um, is uh, in Gath and he, and he pretends to be a madman so that he can get away. All right? And you, it takes you back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And when, how 1 Samuel chapter 21 opens is David's on the run. He's on the run from Saul who's trying to kill him. He's on the run from all of his enemies. I mean, every, the whole world is against David. And so he shows up at the beginning of, of chapter 21. He goes to this priest in this land and in this city called Nob, which is outside of Bethlehem. And he's hungry and he needs some food and he, he doesn't have any weapons. And so he asks the priest, listen, I, I need a weapon. I need a, I, need, I need a spear or a knife or something. And the priest says, I don't have anything. All, all I have is Goliath's sword. And so David goes, yeah, that'll do. I'll take that. Then David wakes up the next day and he's, he has to run again. And he has nowhere to go and he's desperate. And you know where he goes? David. With Goliath's sword, he goes to Gath. You know what Gath is? Hometown of Goliath. So David, on the run, nowhere to go, desperate, goes to seek refuge in the town of Goliath, carrying his sword. Well, it doesn't take him long to figure out who David is. And so fearing for his life... He, he pretends to be a madman. He writes, scratches the wall. He says crazy things. He lets his spit run down his beard. And they say, man, we don't, want any, we don't want any mad people among us. So they send him out. See, the reality is, then David sits and he writes Psalm 34. And, and, and the reality is, David was pretending and he wasn't pretending. He had lost his mind for a second. He, he'd lost sight of where his true hope was. He thought for a minute it might be in some bread or it might be in a, in a sword. And that he was just going to fight his way through these things. But he writes Psalm 34 and he, and he writes it for this reason. He writes it to praise the Lord for delivering him. And he writes it so all of his people would read and know, listen, our security is in nothing that we will ever do. It is in our God who protects us and is our refuge. We do not have to fight our own battles. We take refuge in God. He says this in the beginning of 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He goes on to say, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. And then, 
That's what comes just before what Peter quotes. Do you want a good life? Hold your tongue. Do good. Don't do evil. Know that God sees. And then right after this, he says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Peter's purpose is that, look, God sees the good life we desire doesn't come from seeking to right all the wrongs. We've been born again to a living hope, the good life that we've been saved to. We've been saved by Jesus. We don't have to fight for ourselves. We have already been one. He said earlier in this letter, we are God's own possession. You don't have to fight for yourself. You don't have to hang on to that anymore. You're free to bless. And listen, the reason you don't repay evil for evil is because, because you remember as a believer, God, God didn't do that to you. He didn't repay your evil with evil. You know what he did? He put all your evil on his son Jesus and he repaid his son for it. And he turns and hands you grace. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that we deserved and hands us the cup of grace. You know, if you want to see a perfect picture of all that Peter's talking about, you can go to Acts chapter 7 and read the end of it. It's Stephen. One of the deacons, he gets pulled out in front of the religious leaders. He, it's like this little trial there. Stephen says, I have something to say. And he begins to recount the longest sermon in all of Acts, as he begins at the very beginning and lays out the plan of redemption that culminates in Jesus, the one who you guys killed. And it says they, they gnashed their teeth at him. And Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Lord, don't hold this against them. As Jesus hangs on the cross and they hurl insults, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's a blessing. That's how we bless. Been wronged? Something you need to forgive? Settle in your hearts now, Lord. Don't hold this against them and forgive me for holding it against them. Pray. Pray that an enemy might become a brother. Pray that you'll stand in eternity with them forever. Listen, remembering all that we have been forgiven, we bless. It's what we're about to celebrate, it's what we're about to remember. We're going to take communion as the church. This is what the church did every week together as they gathered. Even in the midst of the criticisms and the revilings where people would say, look, they, these are cannibals. They, they eat 
what they call flesh and drink what they call blood, and the church never gave it up because this is the symbol, it's the reminder, it's the remembrance of our hope that all we deserved was poured out on the Son of God and all that He is was given to us. So the church for 2,000 years has gathered in the name of Jesus to remember His life in the bread, His sacrifice in the juice, His perfect obedience and His all-satisfying sacrifice where He takes our place and then clothes us with all He is. Died on a cross, lay dead for three days, and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might have life, a living hope. The sky's not falling. Never been more secure. Peter calls us not just to survive, not just to live, but to thrive as the body of Christ. Light in the darkness. Blessing all that we know. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the men who are going to help us serve communion. If they'd come up and I'm going to pray for us and then we will distribute the elements. We'll pass out the bread. We'll pass out the juice all together and we'll just all hang on to it and we will eat and drink um, with one another in harmony. And so let's, uh, if you will, let's go to the Lord in prayer. As we prepare our hearts, I would say this, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, this, this, um, this table's open to you. If you've trusted in, in Jesus, in Him alone, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the, the cleansing of all that you were, the clothing and all that He is, that if your hope is in Him, in Him alone, we, we invite you to partake of this table. If it's not, if, if you're here this morning and you haven't decided about that, would you just watch us? As we, as we rehearse who we are as God's people. Father, I pray this morning that you would, that your word would not return void that our hope would be rekindled in your son Jesus, the living hope. The one we'll see next week that we'll be ready to make a defense about. That, Father, we would not get caught in things that are only survival or merely living, but that, Father, we'd be a people who thrived in the midst of the culture around us. Father, I ask this morning that for those here that um, need to be convicted of, of, of sin they're hanging on to or anger or bitterness or hurt they're hanging on to. Father, would you grant them the grace to let that go this morning? Father, there's somebody in this room that, that needs to be reconciled with. Would you orchestrate that this morning? If there's somebody outside these walls that we need to go and seek out to say, I, I'm sorry, I've held this against you. 
I'm going to choose to bless you. Father, would you, would you compel us by your Spirit to follow you in that? And for anyone this morning that doesn't know, hasn't come to the place of laying their life to say, you know, there's nothing I can do to reconcile myself to you, God. I, I am at a loss. I have sought good life on my own terms and in every way, and I have not found it. Father, would you grant them the faith this morning to look to your Son, Jesus, and to know, even today, what it is to be saved and redeemed and cleansed and to be counted as a child of God. So, Father, only you can do that. So that's the way we pray. We pray the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.